Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hope everybody's doing well today. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed Podcast. And today we have a very special guest calling in from the Isle of Lewis, which is an island north of Scotland. And his name, he's a baker. And I'm hoping I'm getting his name right. Canuck McLeod. <laughs> he said it's oh, like a hammer. So welcome to the show, Canuck oh, McLeod. You can say your name you. properly for all the viewers out there. You know, don't lo- laugh, John, but it's it's a Gaelic word. And uh, I'm sure I was a very cute two-day-old baby because Canuck is the Gaelic word for handsome. It's gone downhill okay. since then. And I'm so glad this is a podcast because people then can't see. Um, but uh, yes, Canuck McLeod. How are you doing, John? Falchin. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And it's very interesting what part of the world you live in and thinking about how you were able to reach thousands of people and make yourself known by what you do being a baker. Tell us a little bit yes. about that, that thought process. Yeah, for sure. Um, so as you say, I'm from the Isle of Lewis. It's the most northerly of the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. And to put that into context, where I am right now, I'm closer to the south coast of Iceland than I would be the south coast of England. So I'm a wee bit north, you would say. And I started creating content as the Hebridean Baker about two and a half years ago, genuinely with a dream of making sure that the stories, recipes, heritage and language of our island wouldn't be forgotten by the people on the island, never thinking it would resonate throughout the rest of the world. And um, I think it's now 23 million people have watched my videos. And I definitely know there's not 23 million people on my wee island. So yes. thank you to everybody who, who's, who's tuned in. Being a baker on an island in Scotland, outside of Scotland, north of Scotland, I would imagine there's a lot of authenticity there when you start with ingredients and how you bake, you know, and it's probably a lot different than how they bake here in the U.S. just from a, an ingredient standpoint. Can you talk about what's different between the authenticity of, of baking where you're at compared to some traditional things you may have seen here in the States? Well, I suppose it all comes back to tradition and family recipes. And I was very lucky that my aunt, my aunt Bellac, told me to bake. She's now 94, still bakes every day. Her husband, Moraka, is... 95, soon to be 96. So I think the first thing is we want to live a long life, eat Hebridean cakes. I think that's <laughs> the first uh, lesson we're learning here. Um, yeah. But genuinely, we were, were sitting by her stove one day and she had um, probably our most traditional uh, recipe bubbling on the stove, which is called a duff. It's a, a very simple uh, boiled fruit cake, but there's a little bit of uniqueness about it and the way it's baked and the way it's served. And it happened to have been her 65th wedding anniversary that day. And um, she was just telling me about the traditions of the, the wedding and how she baked this 
65 years ago that day and she was still baking it the same way with um the same traditions and um as i said it just it just resonated and, and as i said i'm so pleased it has around the world and even though i don't think the flavors are significantly different what i think um I love about a lot of Scottish recipes is that there's a story behind them. And I hope when people's, if people buy, buy my cookbooks that they uh, tell the story as well as bake the dish. That's, that's kind of what my dream is uh, uh, with this cookbook. Well, let me ask you this about the yeast. You know, I, I've, there's a restaurant near where I live and the owners from Rome, Italy, and she said the yeast in America was dead. Do you have the same uh, thought process and what does it mean to have dead yeast? Um, do, you, <laughs> do you know what, what always makes me smile is when you open your cupboards and you have, uh, maybe it's some dry yeast, you've got some cinnamon, you've got some allspice, you've got all these jars and you think, yeah, 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 that, that'll do. And then you look at the bottom and it says best before 1997, August. <laughs> and you realize yeah. you haven't baked <laughs> for that long. Um, fresh ingredients, even fresh dried ingredients is very important to, to the baking process. Um, and they're not costly, those ingre these ingredients. So try and always have the best available, the best flavors, you know, the best whiskey, uh, the best jams, the best cream, all make a difference to the end product. You get your products right there from the island or stuff brought in from, from the mainland? Yeah. Uh, I mean, for six months a year, we live completely off grid. Uh, we, we have a, what's called a hut. It's a, it's kind of lifestyle that came from when we were part of Norway, when the islands were part of Norway, they have Hütte. Uh, I guess in America, you have cabin life, which is a little bit more glamorous than, than hut in life. Um, uh, to 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 be a hutter, you have to live somewhere that's smaller than thirty square meters uh, in size and doesn't have electricity or running water. So that's what we do for for a lot of our year. And so yes, I mean the only way to get to to our hut is by is by canoe. So you can imagine every few weeks kind of heading down the canoe with our supermarket shop is very important because if you forget something, well. <laughs> you're not eating it for a few weeks um but yeah a lot of stuff comes from the mainland and i love a trip to the mainland and get wowed by the uh the supermarkets uh, I, I literally feel like you know a, a, a kid in a sweetie sweetie shop as i go to the mainland and, and pick up all my extra treats for sure <laughs> what are your ancestors from that part of the world yeah so um if you go back to about 800 uh, that's when the Vikings arrived on our island. Um, previous to that, um, the we we had visited from from Ireland, and that's where our language came from. So, what you probably know as Irish Gaelic or Gaelic, as we call it, came to our island, and we mucked mucked around with it a wee bit. And now that's my first language, the language of Gaelic or Scottish Gaelic. The big difference is by the time we got to our island, uh, the Vikings had decided to come and do some marauding and shenanigans um, on, on our island for 400 years. Um, so, for example, 99 of the 113 villages on our island are Old Norse or Norwegian names. And so I would say about 40% of our language is 
Old West Norse. And a lot of our influences still do come from, from, from that area. MacLeod, uh, as you might know, John Mac is the Gaelic word for sun. And Yorge was the last king of Norway when the Hebrides was, were part of Norway. Um, so I can kind of follow my line back through great, great grandfathers who, who didn't really leave even my village, never mind left the island, but eventually back to um, the kind of Nordic kingdom uh, around kind of about 1100 or so. So it's a very strong Viking influence on our, on our islands. Even our accent is quite different from the rest of Scotland. We <laughs> uh, Today I was doing a radio interview um, for an English show and the presenter said I sounded like the Swedish chef and the Muppets. And I'm not too sure if that was supposed to be a compliment. I took this a huge compliment, but I don't know if <laughs> it was supposed to be a compliment or not. What would y'all consider indigenous people in that part of the world? I mean, did you study indigenous people in that area? And was that part of your childhood of learning or what did that um, look it's like? Not, it, yeah, it's not a term we use, but we should use it, to be honest with you. Um, but it's not a term we use for um, the Gaeltoch, as we say, which is the Highland and Gaels, the, the Gaelic folk uh, of our islands. Um, but certainly growing up, our experience, you know, this is when I maybe I'm kind of being challenged a little bit politically because we are still part of Britain and our education is influenced by that. So growing up, sometimes you don't learn about what is on your own doorstep. But fortunately for me, I did kind of strive to learn more about my islands, about our heritage and also where our people went as well. We we were taken off our lands uh, over the kind of last 200 years. Um, and there was a concept called the Highland Clearances uh, where uh, the landowners decided it was financially better to have sheep or cattle than people uh, on their land and um, sent a lot of people from the islands to uh, Canada, so Nova Scotia, of course, New Scotland, Cape Breton, North Carolina, um, and a lot around the east coast um, of of the US, um, which is a joy now because our heritage, you know, I went to Cape Breton on a book tour uh, last year, and I spoke as much Gaelic um, there that I do at home. It was it's just wonderful. And knowing when my book tour hits the US, um, I hope to kind of share that with many people who have Scottish connections. What did you say you called the indigenous people? What did, you, what did y'all refer the to? Gael them the Gael The Gael 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 Yeah. Now, what did what was what did they look like? Oh, I mean, if I was related to them, I'm saying a good good looking bunch, John. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, when you look back, probably the thing that's most um, striking. Um, and still you can see in our landscape is the, is how they lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, my, my aunt that I mentioned, my aunt Bella, like she was born in what's called a black house. We, that's the term we use for a thatched stone house that would have, that would be built to have both the family and the animals living in the same house. And the only divide between the two would be a central, uh, fire made with peat between the, basically to keep the, the, the warmth from the cow, the cattle would also keep the, the, the family warm. And so it wasn't until the 40s and 50s that people on the islands 
moved to, again, it, it seems strange terminology because it's translated from Gaelic, but we call the traditional houses black houses and we call, I don't know, normal houses or our, our houses, now we call them white houses. And the way, reason why they were called white houses or, or that version in Gaelic is because they had electricity. And so you could light up the house. They were white when uh, when the lights went on. And so you can still see across our landscape the stone thatched houses that our ancestors were in. And I think it, it's those types of things that are most identifiable and quite unique to our island. We had the concept of uh, brochs as well. And you had brochs on the land and brochs uh, on, on islands. And they would be a circle, a very tall circular part stone, part wood, um, where probably the more senior family in the village would, would live, but there were also lookout points. So if the Vikings were coming over the hill, then at least you had a, you know, maybe a minute or two's warning before they, they, they came to, to say hello. It's an oddity there that um, they would live in the same house as the animals. Do you think there was a communication you know, because they say that at some point that, you know, in our time period that humans and animals could communicate. I mean, do you think there was some kind of thread of that thought process? You know, I, I, I couldn't say if that's the case or not, but I certainly know my, my brother is a, a sheep farmer. He has around 500 sheep and they know him like they really know him. I'll walk towards the sheep and they'll run the other direction. When my brother Mordo walks towards them, they're coming to say hello. And he knows every single one. He looks at her face and says to me, do you remember their mother? And I'm like, Mordo, no, <laughs> I don't remember that sheep's mother. Um, yeah. But they're, they're definitely for, for those who are, and I'm sure many of your listeners are passionate about, um, uh, about be it produce, vegetation, or uh, um, their the, the farm animals, then there is an absolute connection between between you and them, for sure. And what do you do for fun? I mean, does it get warm or is it cold all the time? I mean, you know, living in a cold <laughs> environment, I mean... What do y'all do? Where do you have fun? Where do you have excitement? What is, what's the temperature <laughs> like all the time? Well, I'm not very good at Fahrenheit, so apologies. We still work in Celsius, but to put it into context, our average um, winter temperature is about zero. So it doesn't get ridiculously cold. The wind chill is, is the extreme thing. When you look uh, over my hill uh, on the other, the next thing is America. There's nothing in between me and you right now. So the storms that come off the Atlantic are wild, uh -huh. really wild. Um, you know, for us to have 100 mile an hour gales, it's just like just a, a normal kind of day-to-day, week-to-week occurrence. Um, we don't get much daylight in the winter. We normally get about three and a half, four hours of daylight. But then summertime is where everything flips, where we nearly have, you know, 24 hours uh, a day um, of, of light, maybe not fully daylight, uh, sunlight, but uh, light for 24 hours. For fun, I think, um, the mo again, community is very important to us. Music is very important to us. And it's not, you know, I think sometimes for, for men, maybe singing isn't uh, an automatic thing, but when you're a Hebridean man, singing is part of your storytelling. 
And so it's much more common for Hebridean men to, to sing and tell stories. And we have the concept of the Kaylee. A Kaylee um, is a gathering uh, of your community. Uh, it can involve traditional dancing. It can involve singing and storytelling. And for me, I think that is that's probably one of the most important things uh, on our islands is, is the, the culture of, of Kaylee and a community that comes with that. And um, there's usually a few drams, you know, a, a few whiskeys drank and uh, a few spins, spins around the dance floor as well. Uh, but it's uh, a, a very special occasion and uh, still still love going to a, a weekly Kaylee for sure. Now you talk about whiskey and obviously it's a big part of your, your cooking and baking. Um, do you, do you import the whiskey or do you do anything there on the island? <laughs> well, you don't, uh, maybe you're not or supposed to talk about it. I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, some of your listeners might know the great, um, uh, there's a, a wonderful book called Whiskey Galore. And it's from a true story when um, a ship that was carrying hundreds of, of boxes of whiskey hit the rocks of the island of Vajrasi and Bara in southern Outer Hebrides. And um, <laughs> uh, basically, you can imagine if you know there's 10,000 bottles of whiskey just off your um, off your shoreline, you're going to do everything possible to try and get that. And that's exactly what they did. But these... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We keep a lot of emotions bundled up inside in life, and sometimes we got to talk to people. I witnessed the benefits with my own two eyes. I have a close friend that was struggling with depression and felt like she had no one she could consistently talk to because of her busy schedule. She was matched with a therapist through BetterHelp. After several months of sessions, I've seen a tremendous change in her personality and in her life. If you're needing therapy and, and want to get some of those things off your chest, it's entirely online and designed to conveniently work around your schedule and empower you to be the best version of yourself. Just fill out a questionnaire and they will align you with the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com unimpressed today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash unimpressed. We do have a distillery on the islands. We're not known uh, in the way that the island of Skye or Isla 
uh, are for, for, for whiskey. But the Isle of Haddis distillery, which at the moment is producing a wonderful gin, which is flavored. Being honest with you, John, it's very difficult for us to guarantee our botanicals on land because of our uh, harsh climate. So cleverly, the distillery use um, sugar kelp. Uh, which is uh, all seaweed off the Hebridean Islands is edible. So they use sugar cap, which is much more accessible uh, than many on-land botanicals for the gin. But they're, they're on, I think, year seven in their maturity of their whiskey, which I'm very, very excited about. But in the meantime, don't worry, uh, I have plenty stock. My favorite, I do love a Jura whiskey. And it's interesting because if you know geography, Isla and Jura are only four minutes away from each other by ferry. But Isla is famous for its very heavily peated whiskey. And um, I don't even, what am I now, 48? I don't think my palate has matured enough yet to appreciate that very heavily peated whiskey. So I, I love a smooth whiskey. Uh, Judah's a great example. The Speyside whiskeys, the Orkney whiskeys as well have that. So yeah, I definitely like the whiskey in my in my recipes. And is the whiskey made, What is it the water there that makes the whiskey special? You know, because obviously the foundation of any alcohol made is very, very important. What makes the whiskey the whiskey where you're at? Yeah, a, a, a number of different reasons, but you're absolutely right. The water is going to be one of the significant influencers. And particularly, as I said, if you're going to have a, a Talaskar from Sky or a or a Bundahavin from, from Isla, they are going to get their water from uh, uh, from a loch uh, or from a source that is very heavily peated. And that's going to make a huge influence uh, to the, the final product, where others, you know, use maybe more mountain spring water, um, which uh, allows a much smoother, smoother taste. Um, but a lot of it is in the maturity. A lot of it is in the selection of, of barrels. Um, and you'll find, I mean, most of our barrels will be coming from the US. You know, a lot of them are, are bourbon bar- barrels. Um, that, that, that are used in the process. They're, they're, they're the most popular uh, ones mm-hmm. to use. Um, but uh, it's, as I said, fortunately for me, by, by selecting a, a different whiskey does totally change uh, the, the flavors. And I would choose certain whiskeys for certain things. Um, like if I make my whiskey marmalade, for example, that really works with a, a peaty a peaty whiskey. Um, it it kind of adds something to your to your breakfast toast, to say to say the least. Uh-huh. Whereas maybe a, a cake will benefit more from a smoother whiskey like a Judah. Do you use whiskey in most of everything you make? <laughs> well, do you know what? I remember when I had interviews for my first book, and somebody kind of highlighted. I think they said something like. 27 of my 75 recipes had alcohol in them and genuinely mm. it wasn't intentional but it is a, a, a great scottish flavor that we have to celebrate but i do promise that um if you do buy the book and you don't drink that is plenty i promise plenty treats that you'll enjoy because i mean it, it's definitely a different approach because i i haven't my wife's a chef and she's a she's a taste a taste master you know she can she can pick out different flavors and, and, and take a different ingredient and match match the flavor with an ingredient. And 
I've never heard a lot about whiskey in the foods here. So it's definitely um, something different. Give it a different palatable taste based on where you're at. So that that's something I would like to check out just to see see what that is. Maybe you can send me a cake or something. What is your most made recipe and what's your favorite recipe? Well, I have to go back to my aunt's recipe, the, the duff, or as they call it on the mainland, a clouty dumpling, this boiled fruit cake. There, um, um, if there's any of your listeners who are single and might be interested in getting married to a Hebridean man or woman, if they can learn how to make a duff, get a one-way ticket to the Hebrides, you'll be married within the fortnight. That is the, that's the way to our heart. Um, and there's a couple of things that make it quite distinct, distinctful. Um, when, when you, you, you boil it, uh, for three hours in, in a muslin or a dish, dish towel. Uh, but before you put the batter into it, you liberally spread, uh, the muslin with flour. And what that does, it creates, uh, quite a thick skin on the fruit cake. And I mean, I love it. I know plenty of people that take the skin off, <laughs> but for me, the skin is part of it. But it's actually more the process of even how we eat it. Day one, uh, we have the duff, just like a cake. You slice it, you have it with a cup of you know, tea or coffee. Day two, it's more like a dessert. You'd pour vanilla custard or, or cream on top. But every Hebridean waits for day three. And, <laughs> and day three, we fry it with black pudding, with sausage, with bacon and eggs. And we have it as part of a Hebridean breakfast. I'm actually salivating, even <laughs> thinking of having that. And so there is a real tradition to the process of even eating this. And so I think if I was only allowed to make one dish for the rest of my life, I think it would have to be uh, the duff. But also when you're a, a Scottish baker, shortbread is very important. Gotcha. And having the best, best shortbread recipe um, can make or break uh, a Scottish baker. And genuinely, I travelled from the farthest south to the farthest north and ended up choosing a, a, a shortbread called a Bride's Bon, which is a Shetland uh, shortbread. And um, again, this is where our kind of Norwegian influence comes in because it's quite a classic shortbread. It's uh, in a petticoat tail, so around, but it's flavoured with caraway seeds, which isn't a Scottish flavour that we would use, but it's a very popular Norwegian flavour. But it's again, it's a story behind it that I love. And that's so much the case with so many of the recipes I choose and I find. So bride's bone is made by the mother of the bride on the day of her daughter's wedding. And when the daughter returns home from the wedding, the mother doesn't give her a big hug. She picks up the bride's bone and smashes it <laughs> over her, her daughter's head. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's good luck if the guests catch a piece of the shortbread before it hits the ground. You put it under your pillow at night and it's supposed to give you sweet dreams, etc. So I kind of hope that, um, I don't know how happy the brides would be at this, but I kind of hope there are a few mothers of the brides out there that are, are tempted to do this. Maybe not on the wedding day. I'll, I'll let them off with that. But, um, you know, the traditions of the stories that go behind these recipes probably are nearly as important for me than the actual recipe. I, I mean, that sounds like some Viking stuff, you know. <laughs> you know, like, you know, some Viking come out and hit somebody over the head and it was good luck or something. You know what I'm saying? Correct. Sounds very good Viking. 
<laughs> a very, very Viking tradition, you know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. But as I said, there's so many. I mean, uh, in, in none of my recipes, it's called a Scots Flummery. And even I, I find that there's some great cookbooks. Um, there's uh, F. Marion McNeil wrote a cookbook in 1929 called The Scots Kitchen. Uh, Mrs. Dalgairns wrote one in the 1820s. With, she had Scottish uh, heritage. And the Scots flummery, seemingly, um, Flora MacDonald was halfway through a Scots flummery when she was arrested for helping Bonnie Prince Charlie escape from Culloden. And I could just, I'm just imagining her. This is just a lovely kind of nearly syllabub type of dish with whiskey and oats, cream, um, kind of all kind of swirled in uh, with some other ingredients. And I'm just picturing Flora McDonald kind of holding on to this dish going, I just, I just want to finish. Can I just finish this before I go to prison? Yeah. Um, so again, all these stories just make me smile. And I hope, as I said, they're shared as people make my recipes. Is this live life and work for you? What is your ultimate goal, you know, and this teaching about your culture and what you do and so forth? Is that really it, this telling stories? It's definitely a good place to be. I mean, I, I think I'm the luckiest person on the islands because I get to talk about our culture, identity, language, and, and, and food on a day-to-day basis. And as I said, somehow along the way, it's resonated across the world. And I, I still really, I mean, I just pinch myself every day that this has happened that, um, you know, tonight I'm talking to you, John, and like this morning I had a TV show. Then in the afternoon, I was at an interview with the Boston Globe. I, I kind of think what uh, what has happened, but I, what, what I have done then is made sure that at, at the center of all this is my passion for, as I said, my language and my, my islands. And very proud that um, there's people visiting the islands and seeing something. As I said, we're just a wee bit different. And I just want to celebrate those differences. Well, I think people are attracted to authenticity and innocence because to some extent, you're kind of like in a cap, you're kind of like in a time capsule. (laughs) You you know what I mean? And, And you're, you're environmentally driven and being environmentally driven you know, you don't deal with a lot of the other vibrations that a lot of the population has to deal with. That it creates distractions. So I think you hear something innocent, wholesome, innocent, and authentic. I think people are gravitating to more of that now because we're not getting that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. Um, the timing of what you're doing, I think, is is very good. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, in the beginning, nothing was intentional. I was just sharing my life and my recipes and uh, what myself and my partner, Peter, do on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, but then when I kind of learned what people, how people were absorbing uh, or, or appreciating it, there, I don't know if you know, but uh, there's a concept on Norwegian television just called slow television. Like they'll they'll put a, a camera on the front of a train or outside when the snow is falling and they'll just record it live for four hours and people will just sit and watch their TV just wondering where the train is going or what's going to happen uh, in this wee village that, that <laughs> where there's snow. And even when I was um, in the in the beginning when I started creating content for TikTok. When I when I was watching the the videos 
uh, on that platform uh, from a lot of the bakers. It was the biggest cake or the most buttercream or the most tears that um, you could create in this kind of confines of 60 seconds. And I just kind of took a very different approach where I wanted the 60 seconds to feel a wee bit slow and uh, make things that people could actually make that day, not trying to make the most extravagant, but make the most accessible and just allowing people just to, as I said, slow down. There's a, there's um, I, I did this Danish radio show. I don't know if you remember, John, there was a real craze of a, a, a Danish thing called Hygge a few years ago, which was this kind of lifestyle of kind of sitting by the bar with a cup on, being cozy with your friends. And the, the presenter asked me, is that a Gallic, is that a Gallic word for Hygge? And you have to think on your feet when you're doing these kind of things. And actually, I realized there was, there's a word called Blas in, in Gallic, and it means contentment or, or warmth. There's a lovely phrase, Betty Belas in Lewis, um, which means um, there's a time for everything. So just slow down, enjoy what you love in life, and you'll find others that, that enjoy it and, and want to connect with you doing the same. Uh, let me ask, this is something a little bit out of your spectrum. Is you swinging golf clubs over there with Scotland being a big golf place? <laughs> I mean, y'all y'all play golf on that island? You know what a golf we club do. looks like? I, I do. I wouldn't say I'm any good at it. We, at Ireland isn't big enough for an 18-hole golf course. We have a nine-hole that you just do twice. Um, <laughs> nice. um, but at the same time, you're right. We have some of the most spectacular golf courses and heritage of golf uh, in the country. So anywhere from... St. Andrews down to Ayrshire, uh, to Turnberry, up to Aberdeenshire. There is some very, very special uh, places to go. I just was never bitten by that sport. Um, I'm much more of a team sports guy, so uh, football and rugby are definitely my, my sports. If people want to find your books and, and anything about what you do, where are we looking for that information? Well, there's uh, this we think of Instagram, which I know people like. Uh, so you can tune into that at Hebridean Baker. And that's where I share a lot of my recipes and stories and what's going on in life. The cookbooks, um, my first cookbooks uh, was actually the best-selling cookbook in Scotland in 2021. Unbelievably, my second cookbook was the best-selling cookbook in Scotland in 2022. Wow. Um, my first one's already available in the US, and um, I had my first book tour in May across 12 cities, uh, which was a remarkable experience. So you can pick it up everywhere from the classic Amazons and Barnes and Nobles, but some of my favorite bookstores I went along the way, like uh, Book Larder uh, in Seattle, uh, Omnivore Books uh, in, in San Francisco, who dedicated the whole bookstores to just cookbooks. Absolutely amazing. Just to be a bestseller in Scotland, how many units is that? I think my first book has sold, I think it's 57,000 copies. Wow. Um, and as I said, there's definitely not 50,000 50, people on my island. So please, there's people off my island uh, buying it. So. <laughs> I mean, that's a big deal. Hell, you're the spokesman for bakers in Scotland, basically. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you, if you got titles back to back years, you know, that's a big deal. So good for you, man. 
you know, having a big Thank voice, having a big voice on a little island. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's it's great, and a lot of support from the people on the island, uh, from the producers on the island. You know, we uh, we create uh, in all of the Hebrides, great whiskey, great black pudding, great vegetation that I get. Um, you know, from uh, great salmon, great. Um, venison, you know, we, we are very lucky. My father was a fisherman, uh, until he passed away and, uh, I would have lobsters on my table every week and, uh, beautiful crab and stuff. So I've, I've been very lucky to have been in an environment where I, I have great produce around me. Nice. Nice. Well, Konik, did I say that right? Konik? Uh, I, 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 I'll say Jonas, I've been called a lot worse. Kanak, Kanak, Kanak McLeod. I've been trying to say his first name. I've said it ten different times in forty-five minutes. Uh, or ten, I've, I've said it ten different ways in forty-five minutes. But I appreciate you coming on the show. And I want to try to say it one more time. This has been Baker, best-selling Baker in Scotland. Kanak, Kanak McLeod, and my name is John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. 